Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Story of Your and Yours, Episode 9. My name is Sean Ennis, and I am the host of the show. Now, usually, right about here, we would start off the show with an iTunes review, but this week we don't have any new ones to read. So, you know what that means? It means it's up to you to provide us a new review for next week's episode. And how do you do that? Well, you get on iTunes, you go to Apple Podcasts, you leave a review for the show, and we will produce it on here just like we do for the other short stories, complete with any requisite sound effects and or music that your review may require. But moving on to this week's episode. Now, as you may remember from last week's episode, I told you we're going to have a special guest narrator this week, and there is a reason for that. Uh, this is a story that I do really enjoy and I've wanted to do on the show for a while, but you know, it just doesn't sound right with a male narrator. And since Moxie asked me to be a guest on her show last week, and if you didn't hear that, go ahead and download that episode of Your Brain on Facts, it reminded me that I had a story that would fit her voice just fine. And that story is The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Now, a little bit on the author, and we're going to talk about the author more uh, after, the episode, or after the story. But to get started here, Charlotte Perkins Gilman lived from 1860 to 1935. Her most famous work was the story that we will read today entitled The Yellow Wallpaper. And Gilman was another interesting character in literary history. She was an outspoken feminist, which was no small thing in the late 19th century. And her views on the treatment of women in certain situations comes through very clearly in this story. We'll talk about that more after the story itself, but Gilman was abandoned by her father early in life and spent a lot of her time with her father's aunts, one of whom was a suffragist, another was an educationalist, and another was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, despite being a poor student and only receiving four years of formal education, she was quite well-read and thought to be very bright by her teachers. Now, much like Ambrose Bierce a few episodes back, there's a whole lot that we can go into here that we just don't have time for about the life of Ms. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And we're going to talk a bit more about what influenced this story after the story itself. Now, have no fear, fair listener, if you are concerned about not hearing your favorite narrator read this week's story. I will still make an appearance in the episode as a male character. And I have produced this episode just like the previous eight. And in fact, I'm pretty proud of this one in particular. So now... With that introduction in the rear view, let's move on to this week's story. Today, the part of Sean Ennis will be played by Moxie Labouche. The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Stetson It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say a haunted house, and reach the height of romantic felicity, but that would be asking too much of fate. Still I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it, else why should it be let so cheaply? And why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. 
John is practical in the extreme. He has no patience with faith, an intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt or seen or put down in figures. John is a physician, and perhaps, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? My brother is also a physician and also of high standing, and he says the same thing. So I take phosphates, or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics and journeys and air and exercise, and am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it, or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that in my condition, if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus, but John says the very worst thing I can do is to think about my condition, and I confess it always makes me feel bad. So I will let it alone and talk about the house. The most beautiful place. It is quite alone, standing well back from the road, quite three miles from the village. It makes me think of English places that you read about, for there are hedges and walls and gates that lock, and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. There is a delicious garden. I have never seen such a garden, large and shady, full of box-bordered paths, and lined with long grape-covered arbors with seats under them. There were greenhouses, too, but they have all broken now. There was some legal trouble, I believe, something about the heirs and the co-heirs. Anyway, the place has been empty for years. That spoils my ghostliness, I'm afraid. But I don't care. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. I even said so to John one moonlight evening, but he said what I felt was a draft and to shut the window. I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it's due to this nervous condition. But John says, if I feel so, I should neglect proper self-control. So I take pain to control myself, before him at least, and that makes me very tired. I don't like our room a bit. I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza and had roses all around the window and such pretty old-fashioned chintz hangings, but John wouldn't hear of it. He said there was only one window and not room for two beds and no near room for him if he took another. He is very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir without special direction. I have a schedule prescription for each hour of the day. He takes all care from me, and so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. He said we came here solely on my account, that I was to have perfect rest and all the air I could get. Your exercise depends on your strength, my dear, and your food somewhat on your appetite, but air you can absorb all the time. So we took the nursery at the top of the house. It is a big, airy room, the whole floor nearly, with windows that look all ways and air and sunshine galore. It was nursery first, then playground and gymnasium, I should judge, for the windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. The paint and paper looked as if a boy's school had used it. It is stripped off, 
the paper in great patches all around the head of my bed, about as far as I can reach, and in a great place on the other side of the room low down. I never saw a worse paper in my life. One of those sprawling flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study, and when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles, and destroy themselves in unheard-of contradictions. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulfur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. We have been here two weeks, and I haven't felt like writing before since that first day. I am sitting by the window now, up in this atrocious nursery, and there is nothing to hinder my writing as much as I please, save a lack of strength. John is away all day, and even some nights when his cases are serious. I am glad my case is not serious. But these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer, and that satisfies him. Of course it is only nervousness. It does weigh on me so not to do my duty in any way. I meant to be such a help to John, such a real rest and comfort, and here I am a comparative burden already. Nobody would believe what an effort it is for me to do what little I am able, to dress and entertain and order things. It is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby, such a dear baby, and yet I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. I suppose John never was nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. At first he meant to repaper the room, but afterward he said to me I was letting it get the better of me, and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient than to give way to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed it would be the heavy bedstead, and then the barred windows, and then the gate at the head of the stairs, and so on. You know the place is doing you good, he said. And really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house just for a three months' rental. Then let us go downstairs, I said. There are such pretty rooms there. Then he took me in his arms and called me a blessed little goose, and said he would go down cellar if I wished and have it whitewashed into the bargain. But he's right enough about the bed and the windows and things. It is as airy and comfortable a room as any one need wish, and, of course, I would not be so silly as to make him uncomfortable just for a whim. I'm really getting quite fond of the big room, all but the horrid paper. Out of one window I can see the garden, those mysterious deep-shaded arbors, the riotous old-fashioned flowers and bushes and gnarly trees. Out of another I get a lovely view of the bay and a little private wharf belonging to the estate. There is a beautiful shaded lane that runs down there from the house. I always fancy I can see people walking in the numerous paths and arbors, but John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. He says that with my imaginative power and habit of story-making, a nervous weakness like mine is sure to lead to all manner of excited fancies, and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency. So I try. I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. But I find I get pretty tired when I try. It is so discouraging not to have any advice and companionship about my work. 
When I get really well, John says that we will ask Cousin Henry and Julia down for a long visit, but he said he would as soon put fireworks in my pillow as to let me have those stimulating people about now. I wish I could get well faster. But I must not think about that. This paper looks at me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There is a recurrent spot where the pattern lulls like a broken neck, and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I got positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl, and those absurd, unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breadths didn't match, and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate object before, and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. I remember what a kindly wink the knobs of our big old bureau used to have, and there was one chair that always seemed like a strong friend. I used to feel that if any of the other things looked too fierce, I could always hop into that chair and be safe. The furniture in this room is no worse than inharmonious, however, for we had to bring it all from downstairs. I suppose when this was used as a playroom, they had to take the nursery things out, and no wonder. I never saw such ravages as the children have made here. The wallpaper, as I said before, is torn off in spots, and it sticketh closer than a brother. They must have had perseverance as well as hatred. Then the floor is scratched and gouged and splintered. The plaster itself is dug out here and there, and this great heavy bed, which is all we found in the room, looked as if it had been through the wars. But I don't mind it a bit. Only the paper. There comes John's sister. Such a dear girl as she is, and so careful of me. I must not let her find me writing. She is a perfect, an enthusiastic housekeeper, and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing that has made me sick. But I can write when she is out, and see her a long way off from the windows. There is one that commands the road, a lovely, shaded, winding road, and one that just looks off over the country, a lovely country, too, full of great elms and velvet meadows. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights, and not clearly then. But in the places where it isn't faded, and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to sulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. Their sister on the stairs. Well, the 4th of July is over. The people are all gone and I am tired out. John thought it might do me good to see a little company, so we just had Mother and Nellie and the children down for a week. Of course, I couldn't do a thing. Jenny sees to everything now. But it tired me all the same. John says if I don't pick up faster, he shall send me to Weir Mitchell in the fall. But I don't want to go there at all. I had a friend who was in his hands once, and she said he is just like John and my brother, only more so. Besides, it is such an undertaking to go so far. I don't feel as if it is worth while to turn my hand over for anything, and I'm getting dreadfully fretful and querulous. I cry at nothing, and cry most of the time. Of course I don't when John is here, or anybody else, but when I am alone and I am alone a good deal just now. John is kept in town very often by serious cases, and Jenny is good and lets me alone when I want her to. 
So I walk a little in the garden, or down that lovely lane, sit on the porch under the roses, and lie down up here a good deal. I'm getting really fond of the room in spite of the wallpaper, perhaps because of the wallpaper. It dwells in my mind so. I lie here on this great immovable bed, it is nailed down, I believe, and follow that pattern about by the hour. It is as good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say, at the bottom, down in the corner over there where it has not been touched, and I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some kind of conclusion. I know a little of the principles of design, and I know this thing was not arranged on any laws of radiation, or alternation, or repetition, or symmetry, or anything else I have ever heard of. It is repeated, of course, by the breadths, but not otherwise. Looked at in one way, each breadth stands alone. The bloated curves and flourishes, a kind of debased Romanesque, with deleterium tremens, go waddling up and down in isolated columns of fatuity. But, on the other hand, they connect diagonally, and the sprawling outlines run off in great slanting waves of optic horror, like a lot of wallowing seaweed in full chase. The whole thing goes horizontally, too, at least it seems to, and I exhaust myself in trying to distinguish the order of it going in that direction. They have used a horizontal breadth for a frise, and that adds wonderfully to the confusion. There is one end of the room where it is almost intact, and there, when the cross lights fade and the low sun shines directly upon it, I can almost fancy radiation, after all. The interminable grotesque seems to form around a common center and rush off in headlong plunges of equal distraction. It makes me tired to follow it. I will take a nap, I guess. I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it absurd. But I must say what I feel and think in some way. It is such a relief. But the effort is getting to be greater than the relief. Half the time now I am awfully lazy, and lie down ever so much. John says I mustn't lose my strength, and has me take cod liver oil and lots of tonics and things, to say nothing of ale and wine and rare meat. Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real earnest reasonable talk with him the other day, and tell him how I wished he would let me go and make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia. But he said I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there and I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. It is getting to be a great effort for me to think straight. Just this nervous weakness, I suppose. And dear John gathered me up in his arms, and just carried me upstairs, and laid me on the bed, and sat by me and read to me, till he tired my head. He said I was his darling and his comfort and all he had, and that I must take care of myself for his sake, and keep well. He says no one but myself can help me out of it, that I must use my will and self-control, and not let my silly fancies run away with me. There's one comfort. The baby is well and happy, and does not have to occupy this nursery with the horrid wallpaper. If we had not used it, that blessed child would have. What a fortunate escape! Why, I wouldn't have a child of mine, an impressionable little thing, live in such a room for worlds. I never thought of it before— but it's lucky that John has kept me here after all. I can stand it so much easier than a baby, you see. Of course, I never mention it to them any more. I am too wise. But I keep watch on it all the same. There are things in the paper that nobody knows but me, or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. 
It is always the same shape, only more numerous, and it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. I don't like it a bit. I wonder, I begin to think. I wish John would take me away from here. It is so hard to talk with John about my case, because he is so wise and because he loves me so. But I tried it last night. It was moonlight. The moon shines in all around, just as the sun does. I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly, and always comes in by one window or the other. John was asleep, and I hated to waken him, so I kept still and watched the moonlight on that undulating wallpaper till I felt creepy. The faint figure behind seemed to shake the pattern, just as if she wanted to get out. I got up softly and went to feel and see if the paper did move, and when I came back, John was awake. What is it, little girl? He said. Don't go walking about like that. You'll get cold. I thought it was a good time to talk, so I told him that I really was not gaining here, and that I wished he would take me away. Why, darling? He said. Our lease will be up in three weeks, and I can't see how to leave before. The repairs are not done at home, and I cannot possibly leave town just now. Of course, if you were in any danger, I could and would. But you really are better, dear. Whether you can see it or not, I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better. I feel really much easier about you. I don't weigh a bit more, said I, nor as much. And my appetite may be better in the evening when you're here, but it's worse in the morning when you're away. Bless her little heart, said he with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. But now let's improve the shining hours by going to sleep and talk about it in the morning. And you won't go away? I asked gloomily. Why, how can I, dear? It is only three weeks more, and then we will take a nice little trip of a few days while Jenny is getting the house ready. Really, dear, you are better. Better in body, perhaps. I began and stopped short, for he sat up straight and looked at me with such stern, reproachful look that I could not say another word. My darling, said he, I beg of you. For my sake and for our child's sake, as well as for your own, that you will never, for one instant, let that idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temperament like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? So of course I said no more on that score, and we went to sleep before long. He thought I was asleep first, but I wasn't. I lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern. Really did move together or separately. On a pattern like this, by daylight there is a lack of sequence, a defiance of law, that is a constant irritant to a normal mind. The color is hideous enough, and unreliable enough, and infuriating enough, but the pattern is torturing. You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well under way in following, it turns a back somersault, and there you are. It slaps you in the face, knocks you down, and tramples upon you. It's like a bad dream. The outside pattern is a florid arabesque, reminding one of a fungus. If you can imagine a toadstool in joints, an interminable string of toadstools, budding and sprouting in endless convolutions, why that is something like it. That is sometimes. There is one marked peculiarity about this paper, a thing nobody seems to notice but myself, and that is that it changes as the light changes. When the sun shoots in through the east window, I always watch for that first long straight ray. It changes so quickly that I can never quite believe it. That is why I watch it always. By moonlight, the moon shines in all night when there is a moon. I wouldn't know it was the same paper. 
at night, in any kind of light, in twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all by moonlight, it becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean. And the woman behind it is as plain as can be. I didn't realize for a long time what the thing was that showed behind, that dim sub-pattern, but now I am quite sure it is a woman. By daylight, she is subdued, quiet. I fancy it is the pattern that keeps her so still. It is so puzzling. It keeps me quiet by the hour. I lie down ever so much now. John says it is good for me, and to sleep all I can. Indeed, he started the habit by making me lie down for an hour after each meal. It is a very bad habit, I am convinced. For you see, I don't sleep. And that cultivates deceit. For I don't tell them I'm awake. Oh, no. The fact is, I'm getting a little afraid of John. He seems very queer sometimes. And even Jenny has an inexplicable look. It strikes me occasionally, just as a scientific hypothesis, that perhaps it is the paper. I have watched John when he did not know I was looking, and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent excuses, and I have caught him several times looking at the paper. And Jenny, too. I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. She didn't know I was in the room, and when I asked her in a very quiet, quiet voice, with the most restrained manner possible, what she was doing with the paper, she turned around as if she had been caught stealing, and looked quite angry, asked me why I should frighten her so. Then she said that the paper stained everything it touched, that she had found yellow smooches on all of my clothes, and John's, and she wished we would be more careful. Did that not sound innocent? But I know she was studying that pattern, and I am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself. Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something more to expect, to look forward to, to watch. I really do eat better, and I'm more quiet than I was. John is so pleased to see me improve. He laughed a little the other day, and said I seemed to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it out with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would make fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave now until I have found it out. There is a week more, and I think it will be enough. I'm feeling ever so much better. I don't sleep much at night, for it is so interesting to watch developments, but I sleep a good deal in the daytime. In the daytime, it is tiresome and perplexing. There are always new shoots on the fungus and new shades of yellow all over it. I cannot keep count of them, though I have tried conscientiously. It is the strangest yellow, that wallpaper. It makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw, not beautiful ones like buttercups, but old, foul, bad yellow things. But there is something else about the paper, the smell. I noticed it the moment we came into the room, but with so much air and sun it was not bad. Now we have had a week of fog and rain, and whether the windows are open or not, the smell is here. It creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlor, hiding in the hall, lying in wait for me on the stairs. It gets into my hair. Even when I go to ride, if I turn my head suddenly and surprise it, there is that smell. Such a peculiar odor, too. I've spent hours in trying to analyze it, to find what it smelled like. It is not bad, at first, and very gentle, but quite the subtlest, most enduring odor I have ever met. In this damp weather, it is awful. I wake up in the night and find it hanging over me. It used to disturb me at first. I thought seriously of burning the house to reach the smell, but now I am used to it. 
The only thing I can think of that it is like is the color of the paper, a yellow smell. There is a funny mark on this wall, down low, near the mop board, a streak that runs around the room. It goes behind every piece of furniture, except the bed, a long, straight, even smooch, as if it has been rubbed over and over. I wonder how it was done, and who did it, and what they did it for. Round and round and round, round and round and round. It makes me dizzy. I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night, when it changes so, I have finally found out. The front pattern does move, and no wonder. The woman behind shakes it. Sometimes I think there is a great many women behind, and sometimes only one, and she crawls round fast, and in her crawling shakes it all over. Then in the very bright spots she keeps still, and in the very shady spots she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard, and she is all the time trying to climb through. But nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why it has so many heads. They get through, and then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think the woman gets out in the daytime, and I'll tell you why, privately. I've seen her. I can see her out of every one of my windows. It is the same woman, I know, for she is always creeping, and most women do not creep by daylight. I see her in the long shaded lane, creeping up and down. I see her in those dark grape arbors, creeping all around the garden. I see her on the long road under the trees, creeping along. And when a carriage comes, she hides under the blackberry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. I can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. And John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. I wish he would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out at night but myself. I often wonder if I could see her out of all of the windows at once, but turn as fast as I can, and I can only see her out of one at a time. And though I always see her, she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I have watched her sometimes away off in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud shadow in a high wind, if only the top pattern could be gotten off from the under one. I mean to try it, little by little. I have found out another funny thing, but I shan't tell it this time. It does not do to trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes. And I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. She had a very good report to give. She said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep well at night, for I'm all so quiet. He asks me all sorts of questions, too, and pretends to be very loving and kind. As if I couldn't see through him. Still, I don't wonder he acts so, sleeping under this paper for three months. It only interests me, but I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hurrah! This is the last day, but it is enough. John is to stay in town overnight and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was clever, for really I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight, and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled, and she shook, and I shook, and she pulled, and before morning we had peeled off yards of that paper, a strip about as high as my head and half around the room, 
And then, when the sun came and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow, and they are moving all of the furniture down again to leave things as they were before. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement, but I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite of the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself, but I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time. But I am here, and no person touches this paper but me, not alive. She tried to get me out of the room. It was too patent. But I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believe I could lie down again and sleep all I could, and not to wake me even for dinner. I would call when I woke. So now she is gone, and the servants are gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bedstead nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room, now it is bare again. How those children did tear about here. This bedstead is fairly gnawed, but I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out, and I don't want anyone to come in till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot I could not reach far without anything to stand on. This bed will not move. I tried to lift and push it until I was lame, and then I got so angry I bit off a little piece of one corner, though it did hurt my teeth. Then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor. It sticks horribly, and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus just shriek with derision. I'm getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be an admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong even to try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows, even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all came out of that wallpaper, as I did. But I am securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I shall have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night, and that is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep about as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me. For outside you have to creep on the ground, and everything is green instead of yellow. But here I can creep smoothly on the floor, and my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall, so I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door. It is no use, young man. You cannot open it. How he does call and pound. Now he's crying for an axe. It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. John, dear, said I in the gentlest voice, the key is down by the front steps, under a plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said, very quietly indeed, Open the door, my darling. I can't, said I. The key is down by the front door, under a plantain leaf. And then I said it again, several times, very gently and slowly, and said it so often that he had to go and see. And he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. What is the matter? He cried. For God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane, and I've pulled out most of the paper so you can't put me back. And now why should that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so I had to creep over him every time.
You know, for certain conditions, a good rest can be very effective, but for others, it's not quite what the doctor ordered. Now a little bit more about Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It's not a stretch to say that postpartum depression was not treated in the late 19th century the same way it's treated today. Uh, much like it was portrayed in the story, often it was treated with what was called rest cure. The yellow wallpaper was actually inspired by Gilman's real-life experiences after the birth of her daughter. According to her autobiography, after she gave birth to her daughter Catherine, she experienced a severe bout of depression and was given the following instructions by her doctor, quote, Live as domestic a life as possible. Have your child with you all the time. Lie down an hour after each meal. Have but two hours intellectual life a day. And never touch a pen, brush, or pencil as long as you live. End quote. So as you can see, the story was not quite exaggerating the treatment prescribed. And as you may have guessed, this was not an effective treatment and almost led to a full emotional collapse for Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Now, again, there's a lot more information about there that we're not going to get into here. But in a very brief nutshell, she and her husband ended up separating. And obviously, she did write again and was quite prolific in that vein. Now, she actually made her living mostly through speaking engagements, but also published several novels, novellas, short stories, both fiction and nonfiction, and poetry collections. And again, there's a lot more to get into here. If you're interested, certainly the life of Charlotte Perkins Gilman is worth researching and looking into. Well, hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. A big thank you to our guest narrator, Moxie Labouche. And as I've mentioned before on this here show, Moxie is the host of Your Brain on Facts, a podcast about, well, facts. A bunch of facts centered around a different theme every week. Give it a listen if you haven't yet. Then make sure you rate and review the show, whether on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you are listening to the podcast. If you are on one of those fancy podcatchers such as Podcast Addict or Downcast or etc., etc., that iTunes review is the most important review that you can leave us. That is the one that gets us found in more search results and makes us more visible to those who are looking for new podcasts. Big thanks to those of you who have left reviews already. And if you haven't, but you've been thinking about it, well, you know what to do. If you like what you're hearing, spread the word on social media. Like, share, retweet, and all that fun stuff. Make sure you follow the show on all three different platforms. Facebook.com slash SYYpodcast. Twitter and Instagram at SYYpodcast. Admittedly, I don't post always very often. But sometimes, like last week, I'll post something that I don't mention on the show for last week's episode about Rudyard Kipling. If you don't follow SYY Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you missed a few extra notes about the author and his most popular works, like The Jungle Book. Thanks, as always, to Free PD for the music you've heard on this and all episodes of Stories of Your and Yours, and to Freesound.org for sound effects. Whatever sound effects I can't record in the studio, I get from Freesound.org. For a full list of credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Make sure you tune in to next week's episode. Next week, we're going to be doing a little bit lighter fare than a few of the episodes that we've done here by one of the more quotable authors in the storied history of American literature. Now, the first name that comes to your mind when I say that, it may just be right. But wait till next week to find out. Until then, this has been episode nine of Stories of Your and Yours. I have been Sean Ennis. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.